0: Welcome to the Encore episode of 91 of On The Schmooze. Let's do this. Welcome to On The Schmooze,
1: the podcast that highlights talented people from different fields, explores how they built strong networks, and overcame challenges on their way to becoming successful leaders.
0: Now, here's your host, Robbie Samuels. Each week, I sit down to write an email to you, and I wonder, what can I share that will be memorable, useful, and worthy of your precious time? I hope that most weeks, I manage to meet those high standards, but I remember a time not that long ago when I definitely was not. I was reminded of that when I was speaking to a prospective client about her attempts to grow her business over the last year. One of my questions was, do you have an email list? Somewhat sheepishly, she said, Yes, it was a very small list, and she wasn't sure what to send them. So she intermittently sent out an update about what she was doing with links for more information. What she was doing. That's when I had to gently break it to her. I know you know this, but it's not about you. She nodded and said that made sense. She knew that what she was doing really wasn't working. We are all self-interested all of us, and that's not a bad thing. Let me give you an example from one of my coaching clients. When my client launched her podcast, she asked that I coach her on what to say when announcing it to her email list. In her first draft, she wrote about how excited she was to finally achieve this goal, one she'd been working towards for years and years. While that was true, it wasn't as compelling as writing from the reader's perspective. She shifted the focus and shared how this new resource was going to be incredibly beneficial to her listeners, She then invited them to support the success of the show by joining her podcast launch team. The result? In 24 hours, she had over 20 people hitting reply to say they'll be on her launch team, and 10 people left a rating review for her show. While we are all self-interested, those of us who can tap into others' self-interest will attract people who want to work with us and want us to be successful. Your challenge this week, commit to writing a weekly email. Keep the formatting simple, just text and a link or two, nothing fancy. Write to a person, not people. I'm speaking to you, not my listeners. Imagine someone in particular and just write them an email. Keep in mind, it's about your readers, not you. Sorry, no, sorry. Asking for engagement all the time from the very first message. Get to know your readers. Who knows, your next product or service may come from these interactions. Try this and let me know how it goes. Before we dive into this week's interview, are you interested in working with me one-on-one or want to know more about my Mastermind program for entrepreneurial women? Check out my programs at robbiesamuels.com forward slash coaching, and then schedule a chat so we can see how I could support you around leveraging your virtual network to grow your impact and income. Also, a variation of the story I shared today was first published in my weekly email on December 11, 2018, and will be featured in my new book coming out later this year. Now, on to this week's Encore interview. Today's guest is a best-selling author, sought-after speaker, an associate professor of leadership innovation at Oral Roberts University. He has written several books. His first was The Myths of Creativity, The Truth About How Innovative Companies and People Generate Great Ideas. And then he wrote Under New Management, How Leading Organizations Are Upending Business as Usual, which challenges traditional principles of business management and argues that many of them are outdated, outmoded, or simply don't work. His latest book, Friend of a Friend, takes a look at the science of human behavior and offers readers a new perspective on how to grow networks and build key connections. His TED Talk, Why You Should Know How Much Your Coworkers Get Paid, has been viewed over 1.8 million times. When he's not speaking or writing, he's in the classroom teaching students about organizational behavior, creativity, innovation, and strategic leadership. Please join me in welcoming David Berkus. Hi, Robbie. Thank you so much for having me. David, thank you so much for joining me from your office in Oklahoma. I'm thrilled to have you, and I'm really looking forward to this conversation. This is a podcast about leadership and building strong networks. So tell me, what does leadership mean to you? And when did you realize you had the skills to lead?
1: You know, so it's an interesting question. There's that whole like, okay, leadership is influence idea. And there's some truth to that. But I think the biggest thing is that leadership is influencing people to move towards a mutually desired objective, right? We we all have examples of people who are great influencers but they just use that to sell used cars, right? Or worse, they use it to attain a leadership position and then bring us somewhere we didn't want to go, right? So that mutually desired objective piece in my opinion is the most important one. And so you know, when you when you think about skills, I don't I don't know that I would answer it when you have the skills, the biggest thing I think is you become a better leader when you realize that you have a responsibility to those people that you're influencing to bring them to that mutually it's not just about convincing people to do what you want you know that's just being bossy right <laughs> but when you actually take responsibility for the people who are uh, you're entrusted to lead to bring them to a mutually desired objective that's when you've got let's let's call that the skill of self-awareness right but that's when you've got what it actually takes to be a good leader
0: i love this because it goes one step beyond what we, most people usually say about you know, if you can influence people to move in a, in a similar direction, but you're like a mutually desirable similar direction, like there has to be something for them as well. And that this idea of taking responsibility. Now, I'm guessing though, when you first had opportunities for leadership in grade school, high school, college, that you maybe didn't have that skill of self-awareness yet, but, <laughs> but were you already like still sort of assuming or being invited to take on leadership?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it, yes, I'll tell you what happened. So, so high school, college, early life, all of that sort of thing. Um, really, if you, if you figured out if anybody's listening and you're in college, right? Like leadership is actually a trick, right? When you, when you, you're on a work team and you sort of assume the role of leadership, fundamentally, you're going to do less work. I mean, you're going to do the cognitive work of organizing everybody, but you're going to do less work. Right. And so that's what initially attracted me to all of that stuff, right? Is like, like, hey. I could do less actual work as long as I'm keeping tabs on everybody and and managing the project. Right. Um, what really changed for me is, um, I have kids now, so I have a six year old and a four year old. And that moment, like that first moment when you, when they take a little baby and they put them in your hands and you go, Oh crap. Like I'm responsible for the life of someone else. Right. That's, that was like the big real, I mean, I was married for a long time, but you don't feel, you feel sort of co-equal. You don't feel responsible for the life of somebody else. That was sort of the first time that happened to me. And then gradually you start to look at every leadership role you're in as that same deal. No, wait a minute. I really am. It's not just about doing less work because I'm the one organizing stuff. It's, I really am responsible for bringing everyone to the objective of the completed and successful project. That's a whole bigger deal than just, you know, like getting out of having to do all of the research (laughs) in the library by myself. So, you know, so yes, I mean, definitely attracted to those for a long time. The issue was when I was sort of old enough, mature enough, self-aware enough to realize that bigger responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm. So did you have official leadership roles growing up or are you sort of doing it more on these like group group kind of work or playground organizing kind of ways?
1: <laughs> you know, I, I would have to look so far back into my like high school and college life to find official titles and roles and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. I haven't thought through it. Um, but I mean, I, I worked in the, before I went back to graduate school, I was in the pharmaceutical industry. I like to joke that I've been on all three sides of the interviewing table, right? So individual person, but then also the kind of team lead that's not in the management role, but you're part of that interview process, then the actual management role, et cetera. Um, so, so I, I be, before college and high school, I'd have to like dig through my old files to find out what the official words mm-hmm. were. Cause it's not like student body president or that sort of thing. Although that's not really a leadership role. That's really more like being the cruise director for your senior year. Yeah, but, yeah. um, but then we get into, I worked in the pharmaceutical industry and management positions there. Then I basically gave all of that up and went back to grad school, um, which is awesome and great advice for, for, for anyone looking to, um, have a little bit less stress for a time and then a whole lot more stress and <laughs> leading a whole <laughs> lot more high stakes programs.
0: Yeah. Cause you, when you, um, it was a big shift. I mean that's that's really interesting. And and did did that shift help you kind of get to where you are today? Was that a big decision that like really had a, a lasting impact?
1: Yeah, I mean yes and no. So I um so I was when I was in university, I was convinced that I was gonna write books and travel around and talk about said books. When you're 18, 19 years old You think being a writer just means writing fiction and the big dilemma in your life is do you want to be James Patterson or do you want to be Ernest Hemingway, right? Do you want to be poor but brilliant or do you want to be rich but a sellout, right? And it was in college that you start to realize there's all these other genres. I mean, I was was an undergrad when Malcolm Gladwell's first book came out Mm -hmm. and really got to realize like, wow, he's an amazing storyteller, but he's also pairing it with social science and he's also doing something that's like useful to the world. This is good stuff. I want to write stuff like this. Um, and so that was always the goal. A couple different things happened. The, the biggest thing was I, I am really weird in that I met my wife during college and we got married the day after graduation, right? So we were just like, why bother waiting? Let's just do it. Every All the families in town anyway for gra- our graduations. So let's just put it all together, which by the way is a terrible idea and I don't recommend anyone do because it's crazy stressful. But uh, <laughs> but she then went on to medical school and so it was my job to figure out a way to have us eat, right? And so that's what where the detour came. Uh, in terms of uh, working in the pharmaceutical industry for a time, et cetera. Then a couple different things happened. Uh, the biggest one being that the Affordable Care Act passed, which meant a huge amount of uncertainty in the pharmaceutical and medical mm-hmm. industries. Um, and then right at, shortly after that happened, she graduated from medical school. So it, was, it wasn't so much like this big grand realization. It was a bunch of different things coming together that made me rather like, okay, time to do the leap, right? And the yeah. first leap that needed to be made was If I want to write books about social science and making great ideas practical and applicable, I need to know more about that domain. So let's go back to school. Like it's my turn to go back to school. Yeah.
0: What year was that?
1: Uh, 2009, I think.
0: Yeah. Okay. Not knowing anything about you, I almost guessed that because (laughs) I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to on this show who had a major life shift happen in 08 or 09.
1: Yeah. Well, so you think about it. So a lot of different things happen. So you have the yeah. financial crisis is late 2007, early 2008, right? I mean, it really picks up steam in summer of 2008. Uh, January 2009 was when the Affordable Care Act passed. So if you're in medicine, pharmaceutical, any anything that touches healthcare, another bout of uncertainty happens, right? But yeah, that, I mean, the biggest one for most people's lives was that, the, the, that sort of financial crisis that introduced a lot of uncertainty in people's lives. And I think also made them realize like, well, wait a minute. I'm really, really nervous about losing this job that I didn't really like anyway. So <laughs> yeah, why don't exactly. I just take the leap? And it, it's kind of weird. Like, you know, you can it's like, okay, no, no matter what, something bad's gonna happen. I might as well be in control of it and and right. bite the bullet and ha- go through that period of uncertainty, knowing that what I want is on the other end of it, than just going through that period of uncertainty and hoping somebody picks me up after I get laid off.
0: Yeah. So many people I know are celebrating their 10 years right now. It's it's you know, 10 years of being an entrepreneur which is a big, Whoa! I think. didn't even realize it was 10. Yeah. It's 10. Yeah, no, you're right. Huh? Yeah. <laughs> so what do you enjoy? What do you, what do you uh, find most rewarding about the work you're doing today?
1: I, I love great ideas. I mean, my, I look at the, the through line, like you said, in the intro, I wrote a book about creativity. I've a book about management and the new books about networking, which is sort of like intellectual ADHD, right? These are three topics that normally you you pick your one topic and you stick with it. The through line through all of them is I like to say that I facilitate the transfer of good ideas, right? Meaning I take good ideas from the ivory tower and bring them to the corner office or the co-working space or the coffee shop, whatever type of person needs the good ideas, right? Um, and so it's it's twofold. One, I'm really fascinated by um, just learning what uh, evidence-based research is bringing out on new ideas, learning what social science is telling us about human behavior, connections, leadership, etc. The second is that, I mean, my big leap, I went back to graduate school, which meant that I was running i was studying but i'm also in the classroom and I, i'm sort of now i'm i'm in the classroom less often now because the books are are drawing me away from that world but i'm still in the classroom at least once a week and it's that look in people's eyes when they sort of like get it right mm-hmm. when you're introducing that and it's not just the new concept the new idea it's also that sort of look in their eyes where they go oh that's what that means like literally yeah. last night i was teaching a, a one of my uh, the class that i teach this semester is every Monday evenings. And we got into, this is a totally random thing. We got into a discussion about, to bring up Gladwell again, about the 10,000 hour rule, Kay Anders Erickson's work, how it's not actually about the number of hours. It's actually about deliberate practice. Deliberate practice requires a coach. And when you get basically done with undergraduate, most people don't have a coach anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this was this, you know, huge, and you see it kind of in their eyes of like, Oh yeah, I never, I never even, and it's, it's just a really cool moment when you see that. And so now I get to see it in a couple different places. I get to see it in the classroom. I get to see it when I'm on stage speaking at conferences. I, get, I guess I get to see the virtual version of it when people send me emails and that sort of stuff because they read the book. Yeah, I got to find a way to capture that look in their eyes when it's from a reader. Maybe I need to put like a little camera in all of my books,
0: <laughs>
1: but I don't know. I don't know how to do that. Um, but yeah, it's that moment. So that moment is really, it's kind of addictive. I'm sure, I mean, you, you, you're you putting out so much good stuff too. I'm sure you you find that same thing that like that moment where they get it and it changes something about them. It's a really yeah. addictive moment, isn't it?
0: Well, and it's so great when people do give that back. One of the pieces of advice that I, I think bears repeating on the show and everywhere I go is if you read something or listen to something and it inspires you in some way to take action, like go reach out to that. Individual through any means necessary to let them know, Mm -hmm. because the people who are creating great content—it's in some ways you're doing it in a in a quiet void, like you know, like it's it's really unclear how it's going to land, and yet um, it is having an impact. And you kind of have to have a belief that that's true, and then every now and again, someone actually reaches out and tells you that they read something you did or heard you speak, and now they're doing something differently or thinking differently or mindset shift. And that can kind of, that little bit can keep you going for a long time so that if people could just be, it's like such a gift. And, and you know, I think people hesitate to reach out to these like influencers in their space, you know, because they're like, oh, those are big deal people. But, you know, you're making me think that I've never thanked Malcolm Gladwell, you know, like all the time. probably should. Yeah, yeah, probably, him, yeah. Right. I've referenced him a lot <laughs> over the years. Yeah. Um, I want to write like him. I want to be, you know, and have an influence like him. And, I, you know, it's like, wow, he deserves to know that. And I'm sure on many levels he does. <laughs> he knows well, he's but, that, but yeah, still. I
1: mean, you know, you get to that level and you know the statistics like, oh, you know, yeah. this co- this book sold a million copies and he knows that. But you know, once you get numbers are weird. Once they get big enough, they kind of lose their meaning, right? Yeah. And so you still want to be able to drill down on, on the individual, right? So yeah, no, absolutely, you should like. And I I, I am in no league of uh, with Malcolm Gladwell, right? If he's an A list author, that I'm like an E plus, <laughs> 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 but. but um, but I, I, I mean, I'll tell you the exact same thing. We, you don't get annoyed. You never get annoyed by those, those messages. You you get annoyed by the, like those messages followed by, so now will you like send this out to all of your people and do me this favor? You get annoyed right. by those. Yeah. But you never get annoyed by a simple note that just says, Hey, you know, I, I read this that you wrote, I used to think the world worked this way and now I've, I've changed and it's made all the difference. Thank you. Like you'll, you'll never get tired of those
0: notes. One of the best tips I got for that was, uh, the no reply needed. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I th- yeah. I think I heard that through Ramit Seti and Selena Sue. Uh, they yeah. were having an interview about how to reach out to influencers. And like that little line at the bottom, every time I've used that line, they've always written back. <laughs> no, I know. Well,
1: I was going to say the same thing. Every time I see that one, I write back too, because I write back to tell them thank you for, for saying thank you. Like I, it's, yeah, yeah. it means a, a lot to me. Um, what I love about the no reply needed is it's the reminder that you're not asking for anything. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's great.
0: What are the challenges you face? I mean, you had so much you talked about earlier, like, you know, working the pharmaceutical, you were newlywed, helping your wife get through school, switching gears, going back to grad school, becoming an entrepreneur, wanting to write a book, becoming an academic really first, and then yeah. the books. So, so at what point did you realize you had a business? Like, you know, because academics are an interesting breed. Like I've interviewed a few for the show and I feel like after this call, I want to, int- I want to introduce you to all the people I know <laughs> who are in your space because I think the academics who are doing what you're doing, which is trying to bridge the knowledge from the ivory tower to the pop culture mm-hmm. and using storytelling to do that. I mean, that's amazing gift. I, I think it's an amazing gift. But at what point do you realize this is actually like a business that I'm in. I'm not just an academic who's writing books, but you've now developed speaking and like, you are I mean, you're just doing so many sort of add-ons beyond just being in the classroom.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's interesting. My, my story is a bit unique. I kind of jokingly refer to myself as a recovering academic often. Um, I, or an accidental academic. So I, um, I'm trying to think like, this is why when you said 10 years, I took a pause. I need to actually go up and look up like the LLC documents and think when I actually started like that separate checking account and all that kind of stuff It was pretty early. I mean, I was still in grad school and I did it because I started 2010 I started a podcast and I that was like back before podcasting was yeah, cool, seriously, right? Yeah. That's my total like yeah, that's my hipster podcaster line um And really the, the goal was twofold It'd be great if I built an audience, but i'm sure you know this It was also more about that sort of network, right and who? I want to, I want to be this type of person. So let me interview all of those type of people and sort of learn how it, and the most valuable thing for probably the first five years of the show wasn't the audience and the platform. It was the 30 minute conversation that happened after recording mm-hmm. that, that was hugely valuable. Um, so yeah, so I guess I would probably have started looking at it around 2010. We didn't really make any money until 2013. The first book came out in 2013 and that's when, you know, royalty checks started coming in, requests for speaking started coming in Yeah. Um, I mean, a book is, is in some regards, a, an excuse to then go on tour and promote a bunch of different stuff, including your podcast. So that's when like, the ability to get like, advertising revenue and that kind of stuff came in. So, so yeah, I, I guess I would say that I, I in an official legal capacity, mm-hmm. um, had a business starting 2010. So it'd be you know, eight years almost.
0: Yeah. But it's sort of a um, mental state too.
1: But do you, well, yeah. And, and really like started managing it like a business in probably 2014, because that's when stuff started to actually happen. Like yeah. really, really the only thing that happened before that is I got to pay less taxes on my, you know, employee income because I had this business that was losing money every year.
0: Yeah. That's I really think that's the only difference. That's actually so helpful for people to hear. Cause like, um, so you and I have a friend in common, Dory Clark, and I often call her an overnight success 10 years in the making. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think I'm nine years into the 10 years of being an overnight success. You know, I'm like right on the edge of it. Um, it's coming. The, it's coming. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Right, I'm right doing all the right things. But I, I was really helpful for me to understand that because people will leave their day job, jump into entrepreneurship and think like, this is it. I can now like have freedom because everyone's selling freedom. Yeah. (laughs) All these entrepreneurs are selling you freedom, but really you just work your butt off for a few years to figure out what it is you're selling, who you're selling it to, what, you know, what are you about and how are you monetizing and, and how are you like managing that plus having a life and, yeah, it sort of falls into place if you stick with it. But like you said, you took many years where you still had your job. Um, was mainly, yeah. I mean, there's, yeah. so there's there,
1: there's two lessons there, which is, yeah. I mean, quitting your job and jumping off is a terrible idea. You know, I didn't when the financial crisis hit, and then all of the instability in the the healthcare markets hit. I didn't quit. I moved over to grad school, which got me a stipend. And then I took a professor position. Right. The reason I picked both, I mean, the professor position especially is I'm, I'm now surrounded by good ideas. I get the opportunity, to, but I also get the freedom to do everything else that I want to do. I taught Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and then I was, Tuesdays and Thursdays were for research. I just yeah. chose to use all of that research time to do more popular press trade stuff than
0: yeah.
1: write in academic journals that no one cares about, right? Um <laughs> So it afforded me that kind of lifestyle. But I mean, I, didn't, I, I still technically haven't made the leap, right? Yeah. Um, the spring of last year, which was uh, about a year after Under New Management came out, was, the, was like the busiest time of my, my life. I had the most speaking gigs I've ever had in a season. I was still teaching a full load of classes. I was writing the next book. I was gaining 25 pounds because I never had time to go to the gym. Yeah. Right? Um, and that's when I finally had the moment of like, yeah, I should probably scale down the employee thing. Like, you know, yeah. because I, th- I think it's a, I think you should, and I think that's the way to do it. I mean, it, once, and then once I scaled it down, it didn't take me that long to lose all that weight because now I had time to go to the gym. Right. Yeah. But if you, if you're getting in love with this idea that you're going to make, you know, a uh, six figure income right after you quit your job and have all sorts of freedom, like you're, you're lying. Yeah. Here, here's the truth. There's 168 mm-hmm. hours in a week, which means even if you get a solid eight uh, hours, uh, a night of sleep, You still have two, you can have two full time jobs, right? You can work your thing and then you
0: can build your thing. And you should keep doing that until it's too hard to do one or the other. Yeah. Um, Dory's advice to me was at some point, your job is going to get in the way of your business. And that's no. (laughs)
1: Right. Exactly. I don't think you take the leap until then. I mean, that was, that was basically what it was with me is, was the realization that like, I love being in the classroom, but I'm losing money every hour that I'm here Mm -hmm. and and I'm, I'm stressed out and I need to do all this. So I need to, I need to leave. And then even then I still like, I don't want to quit entirely. So I went to the university and started negotiating a deal to reduce my, my load, but keep the faculty appointment, reduce my pay, but keep associated with it because a, because it's always great to have a backup plan, but B, I mean, I won't lie, it's really cool to be a professor. It's great life. Um, but I also don't need it. Like I, I didn't, what I didn't need was to jump off. Right, right. Freedom, what I needed was I needed to be a little less busy during every week.
0: Yeah. So what does, um, I don't want to say work-life balance. It's kind of a misnomer. Um, what's your work-life integration like these days?
1: Oh, I love that term work-life. I was, about, I was actually about to counter your work-life balance with work-life.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, I know. I just think that like, I particularly... When you're in the world, like you're writing and you're speaking, and you're thinking all the time. It's hard to like know when you're not doing that. In some ways, because you you know it's like things, ideas yeah. marinate in the brain all the time. Do you have any kind of habits or practices around carving out either time to focus on something other than this this you know work part, or do you just sort of find that uh I don't know you love it so much it's it works really well to kind of always <laughs> have it in your head or. Yeah. I mean, um, uh, to the extent that I've got a
1: rhythm, it kind of looks like this. Like I, I, we wake up, uh, we have a six year old and a four year old and they, uh, are terrified of sleeping alone in their own room. So they sleep on a mattress in our, our room, a mattress on the floor in our room. So they wake up about six 30 in the morning and wake one of us up. It's usually me and we'll get up, we go hang out, we have breakfast, right. We get them ready for school, uh, by about 8am. They're both off to school. And so then I go down to my, I, I work most days I work out of the home. Um, so I go down to my office and start, usually start writing. Cause it's nice and quiet. The kids just left. I'm still in that. I'm, I'm more of that. I, I'm not, I'm not a willing morning person, but for the last six years have really ground that into me. Um, and so I write for a little bit of time. Then around 1030 or so I go to the gym, um, because that's when I do. Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And that's when the morning practice is 11am. So I got to get there by then um, come back, have a little lunch, go back. And then usually I'm making an exception for you, Rob, because i like you usually, uh, the afternoons are full of all the podcast interviews and that kind of stuff. So they don't sort of cut into the, um, the writing time happens in the morning, the phone calls, the emails, the podcast interviews, the whatever else, yeah. the detritus all happens in the afternoon by about four, the kids are home from school. So then we're hanging out again. Um, homework, dinner. We don't. We don't really. It's kind of cool. His school doesn't do homework. They do make sure you read to them for like thirty minutes a day, which is r- brilliant. But that's yeah. a whole other monologue, um, you know. And then go into dinner, and then you know the cycle repeats itself. So uh, that that it obviously is different on travel days and that sort of thing. But you know, there's there's that integration piece. Is it's really just um, it's not like trying to count the number of hours or do the whatever. It's just there's a natural rhythm. And it's just constantly pivoting back and forth instead of, I'm going to do all of this. And then, you know, and I respect the people that are like, I'm going to be home uh, when I'm home, but from eight to five, I'm at work and I'm not doing, I, I, you know, I respect those people if that works great for you, but I'm, you know, my, my kid comes home 334.
0: So that's when I need to be done with work. Yeah, flexibility yeah. is nice in that sense. I mean, I have a two kids under the age of two and a half, so I cannot I wait until hearing <laughs> the the school bus pick them up kind of moment. Um, that gives me hope. Uh, yeah, yeah. But I, was,
1: so, but I mean, you know, too. Like, so that that whole idea of like work life balance, it doesn't work.
0: What you just have to do is be comfortable with the pivoting back and forth. Yeah, right, and being cool. You know, I, and I'm a work at home dad. Um, they're they're home with me. Um, and when they're not with me, I have a sitter who comes in the morning, a couple mornings a week, to uh, hang out with my toddler. Uh, yeah. When I have interviews, take my baby, my three-month-old, <laughs> with them. So yeah. Um, so I, I actually want to ask questions about networking because you know you have written a book on it. <laughs> so <laughs> um, literally. Uh, so well, I didn't write the book on it. I yeah, just yeah, not a book. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. A book on it. So there's there's this uh, you know people always you know, build relationships you're obviously really good at that you've met a lot of people in your lifetime you've you've actually had a wide array of uh, professional experiences to let you meet lots of different kinds of people my question is are you doing anything purposeful to nurture and sustain those connections like what are your practices or habits to not your inner circle but like the next like ring out how are you staying connected to your like colleague friends that you don't work with all the time, but you, you like them. Um, is yeah. It it stands? Is it, is it like, you know, a purposeful thing you do on a regular basis?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, it, it so it depends on the person. Um, so to real quick, for those who are listening, like Robbie's question is brilliant because most of the research points to the idea that the most underrated part of your network are the weak ties, the dormant ties, the colleagues, the people who aren't close friends. Uh, and they're valuable for a couple of different reasons. The biggest being that your close friends are so near you in the broader network that they think like you, act like you, have the same contacts as you, et cetera. These weak ties are running around with access to information you don't normally have. So you've got to make it that regular practice, right? So I'm at the point where I do a couple things. Um, the biggest is I have a software I love called Contactually that basically reminds me when I haven't talked to certain people in a, in a certain period of time. It's a it's a great software. It usually only works for sort of email conversations and I have to remember to manually enter in. Um, But the other thing that I do, and this is a cool trick that whether you want to buy software or not, uh, I recommend to a lot of people, is I'm not one of those people that says we should abandon all social media or use a newsfeed blocker or all that sort of stuff. I just refuse to comment on any of it. But I use the newsfeed like this. About once a day, I'll scroll through the whole thing in, in Facebook and in LinkedIn because some people are only broadcasting in LinkedIn. And when I see someone that I haven't talked to in a while, a while being defined as usually about 60, 90 days, and they're talking about something exciting. Hey, a family's about to go to Hawaii, or I just got promoted to this position, or whatever it is. They're broadcasting it to the public. So it's not unusual that I would notice it, right? Um, but what I do is I don't click like or comment or do that thing where you type congratulations and then the balloon thing pops up, you know what I'm talking about? Um, yeah. Because if you've ever had a birthday on Facebook or a work person did that. Yeah, you have no idea. It's just this blur of stuff. So what I'll then do is I'll take that piece of information and I'll go to a more private medium—a text message, an email, a direct message. It just depends on who the person is, and I'll say, you know, hey, I just saw this. I just saw that you're going to Hawaii. Um, by chance, are you going to Maui? There's this really great restaurant. I'll just do something after that that sort of connects it, right? And then at the bottom, just write a simple like, you know, how are things otherwise, right? Or, or if it's the right person, maybe I'll do an update on me, but. I'm not like asking for anything. I'm just checking in because I saw this thing, which is my, like in, in sales, there's this term called a trigger point, right? Which is that, that thing that happens when someone's ready to buy, right? That announces kind of announces they're ready Mm -hmm. to buy. These are my sort of like weak tie trigger points. I noticed this thing that you're about to do that I have some useful thing to give to you. And it's an excuse to reach back out to you, right? takes five minutes, right, every day. I don't do it every day because I don't find one every day, but I try for it about every day. And then usually two to three times a week, I end up doing something like that. It takes five minutes. It's a
0: useful thing to do with your newsfeed instead of just liking memes. This is brilliant. And I love that you, as a college professor, broke it down for us. <laughs> it's a, a manageable step. No, no, really, I, I'm, I'm being really sincere. When did you realize that that made sense for you? Because I think everyone is still in the, clicking like... I mean, I even see this when when someone... Um, I, I will tell you, I use reverse psychology on this a little bit. So on LinkedIn, if you add a new job, mm-hmm. it will announce to your community that you have a new job. So when I launched my book and when I launched a podcast, I like will add my new job as being a, an author, being a, a podcast host. And the number of people who will just click the um congrats on your new job that's that'll be the message with no other detail and right. then I'll hit reply and send like you know a slightly personalized canned response to them <laughs> with information on <laughs> how to get more involved and then that sometimes leads to a further conversation because they've yeah they went beyond just liking to just that one extra step, but they didn't actually personalize it. Right, right. I do. <laughs> no, but it's still, I mean, it
1: gives you, it gives you the excuse to write back to them and, and right. say, like, you know, how are things with you? And then ask them a question too. So that's actually not, a, that's a solid. So that's a cool hack that I'd never really <laughs> thought of. That's We'll call that the LinkedIn hack. and you It's kind of a doing-
0: LinkedIn hack, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I, but I think that, uh, but just scanning what people are already saying out there in the world and then reaching out to them through a more private mode is that, a recent phenomenon for you? Is it something you've been creating a habit around for a long time?
1: So, I mean, it's it's been a habit for a long time. You know, it's one it's one of those things, you write a book about networking and you what you find is that you do stuff anyway. Some of it is totally useless because the research doesn't support doing it. And some of it you're like, oh, that's why that one works so well. Mm-hmm. So it's been something I've been doing for about two or three years now. The first time I realized that it was sort of a tactic or a hack was actually a couple years ago when I was in conversation with um, Jordan Harbinger, Jordan Harbinger show is a podcaster. We talked about um, networking connections, all that sort of stuff. Pre book, we were just, just talking about a bunch of different stuff. And that's when I kind of realized that, like, wait a minute, this is a routine. This is something that I can prescribe to other people. This is really good. I have to keep that, you know, in my, in my back pocket. Um, so it was probably only two years ago that I realized and made a sort of a more a bigger commitment to doing it. But I mean, it's, Probably been like four or five years because I just hate the deluge of likes and comments when I announce something. Mm-hmm. Because then you just feel guilty that like there's no way I can thank every single person for wishing me a happy birthday, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so you know if it's somebody that's important to you, you should probably do. I mean, you know this because it's like if your family has a birthday, yeah, you, you don't click like uh, right uh-huh. or comment happy birthday. You you call them right. Yeah. In yeah. Every relationship we should be that intentional about right. This is Maybe not a- as
0: in depth, but as intentional for sure. This is such a massive you know valuable takeaway for this show, our, and our listeners I hope you're all taking note i I'm curious how this relates to how you approach um the ideas of diversifying your network and um this is a kind of a leading question, but I know you believe this as well what why Why is it important to have a diverse professional network, <laughs> and what are the steps <laughs> to um what, what are some steps that you've done to ensure that that is true for you?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, the, the biggest reason is that the, the, the primary benefit of a network, like people say like, oh, your network is your net worth, blah, blah, blah. And, and those are true. The truth is that your network gives you information. The network that you're in affects the information that you have. If you're in a network that's full of people that are similar to you, the, the best term I've ever heard for this is Ronald Burt uses the term redundancy which I think is a great metaphor for the people in your life who look and think and act exactly like you. They're redundant, right? (laughs) Um, Some of them are cool and it's really valuable because you can go enjoy, like go watch a a baseball game together or something like that. But when it comes to information, they're redundant, right? So you need a broader, more diverse network. You need one that's connecting uh, communities like the people who provide the most value or what we call brokers of structural holes, which are structural holes are just the natural gaps between clusters of people um, you either need them or you need to be able to find them so you can get different information, right? The problem is that the lack of diversity in most people's network is not because they're like a bigot or they always hang out in their comfort zone, et cetera. It's a network problem. You start out sort of naturally gravitating to people who are similar to you, who think like you, who act like you. And then when you ask to meet new people, like, let's say you say, I'm going to be a great networker. I'm going to plan, A dinner together and then i'm going to ask people to invite their friends if you're not deliberate about it they're just going to bring people that are similar to you right and so you get kind of no benefit so what i often do is when i'm looking for diversity in the form of whether it's you know uh gender race or whether it's job diversity ideological diversity which are two really really big ones that aren't really on the surface level but are underneath it um i will usually ask the people in my network rather than say you know like Um, introduce me to this person, whatever. I'll say a very open-ended question. Who do you know in blank? Like, hey, I don't know enough people who are in television. Who do you know in television, right? And then they'll give me that sort of list. And Usually I don't even ask for an introduction. It's just good to know they're there so that I have a read on it, right? Or there's a big debate going on about whatever, right? Like um, as we're recording this, uh, unfortunately, because unfortunately we're still debating this, the gun control debate is happening, right? I might not know a lot of people from the other side. So, hey, who do you know in this kind of activism? I just wanna, I wanna talk to them. I wanna kind of understand it. If I just ask you for referrals to cool people I should meet, you're gonna give me people that look like me. But if I ask you who you know in blank and then blank is something that doesn't look anything like me, I'm going to get a list of people that if I, if I were to ask you the first question, would never have popped into your mind. But right. when I'm deliberate about this is what I'm missing in my network, who do you know in blank, I, I get the list of the people that I actually
0: need to meet. Yeah, this is great. I think that if you're going to take a really proactive approach, this is the advice you would take. And then there are the people who are a little more reluctant to do that. And for them, there's probably like other people like you who are gathering interesting people. <laughs> and it's like, keep an eye out for those people. Like you mentioned, uh, Chris Shembro before we got started, you know, it was like, he does the 747 club, uh, dinner club and, um, uh, who I can't think of their name, but there's somebody who he's kind of gats people together, but they can't say they're, they're, they're John um, Levy. John Levy. John Levy. Yeah. yeah the can't say where they were, can't say their name, pairs them up, started making a meal together. It kind of pushes them to kind of experience each other through other lenses than just like, what do you do for work? Which is this tired yeah, of pitching.
1: Well, and the, and the big thing, so there's two big things there. The, f- the first is that in both Chris and John are preventing people from using their normal script, right? The what do you do question that we all sort of, well, actually that it, by my measures, 85% of people don't like because they don't, if, if 85% of Americans are disengaged in their job, then 85% of people don't want to tell you what they do right <laughs> right so you think about it I mean, entrepreneurs have a have a benefit of being in the 15% that love what they do but still that's the majority of people don't like that question the other thing is it it asks people to stay inside their normal script so by by pairing people up and uh, and saying okay you can't talk about your first name or what you do for a time you're forcing people to think about themselves as well you're forcing people to think about themselves as multifaceted individuals which all of us are but we tend to ignore a lot of times when we stick to that script the other thing that's brilliant and both chris and john do this is you're pairing them up and you're you're forcing them to complete a task together right which means there's something at stake that's bigger than just getting to know each other which means in order to accomplish that thing at stake you have to get to know each other right but there's a bigger reason like the reason networking mixers and stuff don't work is that there's nothing at stake if you hang out in the corner of the room and stir your drink or talk to somebody you already know you lost out on a ton but it's not overly obvious that you lost mm-hmm. out on a ton but by inviting you into something where there is something at stake if you don't get along with people it forces you to get along with more people yeah right? and almost by accident you end up leaving with deeper richer connections to people who are different than you because you had to in order to get that other thing done
0: yeah this is a really it's a brilliant premise, and I wish the people going to networking events and conferences could could find a way to hack it so that they they had that urgency, because if they really were aware of the fact that they put so much effort into leaving the house, <laughs> which you know they didn't have to to learn anything or meet people, but they did. they left the house, then the intention needs to be to actually meet people. yeah they should, they should see that as a not just a nicety but like a necessity for making that time outside the house worth it. <laughs> so it's a Yeah,
1: plan. I mean the other the other lesson you could take from it is that like you officially have permission from me to never go to one of those events ever again as long as you're investing that time in something bigger, right? Yeah. So if you're an entrepreneur, if you're investing that time in things like hackathons, right? Or 1 million cups meetings where there's something at stake because you're trying to help the entrepreneur that's presenting, right? if you're an individual just trying to grow your career, right? Crash some other meeting, crash a trade association meeting, pick up a new hobby, right? Volunteer for a nonprofit board, build a house with Habitat for Humanity. Like all of these are things that draw a more diverse set of people and there's something at stake that's bigger than just connecting with people, but you'll connect with people anyway.
0: So my my favorite question David is uh, as we're getting to the end of this, we check in a year from now and we're talking about all the amazing successes you've had over the past year, what are we celebrating? <laughs> um, I,
1: think, I think we're celebrating that. I mean, I'll tell you my goal. We're celebrating that when people say so-and-so is a friend of a friend, it triggers in their mind this book, right? Mm. Um, I don't want to put like a certain sales metric on it or, or whatever, but I want to hijack that phrase Because I want people to think about their networks differently. I think most people, especially when it comes to professional networks, they think about their network as a collection of contacts, whether it's LinkedIn contacts or emails in their address book, whatever it is. And that's not the right way to do it. I want people to think about the fact that they exist inside of a network and then act accordingly. And you get, when you say a term like friend of a friend, you're already referring to network structure. And I want that to remind people that you're in, you exist inside of a network and the best networkers are the people that act accordingly, not the people that just
0: try and run up the count of how many people they know. That's awesome. So David, where can people find you and follow your work?
1: The absolute best place would be davidberkus.com. I have a really weird last name which means the domain is open. You probably got this with Robbie, right? Robert Samuels is probably taken, right? But go by Robbie and it's wide open. Same thing with David Burkus.
0: My full name is actually Robinson. If I gone for that, I probably gone that too. <laughs>
1: okay, all right. So never mind. You, in fact, I'm going to go buy Robinson Samuels right now. Um, <laughs> but davidburkus.com, B-U-R-K-U-S, is probably the, the absolute best place to go. I mean, obviously, I would love you to type that those words into Amazon.com and then you know buy the book in triplicate. But the truth is, there's a ton of free resources there that you should check out um, that'll help you whether you decide to or not. Because again, the big goal is transforming the way people think about networks, not necessarily selling a ton of books. Although I have this thought that if we can transform the way people think about networks, we might be okay on the sales side too.
0: <laughs> That's awesome. I am also going to have links to your LinkedIn, your Twitter, your website, your books, all available uh, at the show notes at com. David, thank you so, so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much
0: for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with David. Such a pleasure to speak with him and learn about his leadership journey. What is your key takeaway from our conversation? Something you'll put into action this week that you'll benefit from for years to come. Share what resonated with you in the show notes at ontheschmooze.com. Look for the encore of episode 91. That's also where you'll find all the links and resources from today's show, as well as all the archived episodes. Reach out and let me know which of your favorite interviews. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with that one friend you know would love to hear it. And don't forget to subscribe for free yourself so you don't miss next week's show. Are you a fan? That's awesome. I'd love to read your review on Apple Podcasts. It's easy to find our page at itunes.ontheschmooze.com. Thank you in advance. and look forward to connecting again next week we'll be interviewing another talent professional who achieved success in their field or industry. I'll ask them probing questions to get them to share untold stories about their leadership journey and how they built and sustained their professional network. Until then, have an amazing week.
1: Thanks for listening to On the Schmooze podcast at www.ontheschmooze.com. That's on the schmooze, S-C-H-M-O-O-Z-E. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.